It certainly is a blessing, isn't it, today to be able to gather and to assemble as we are this morning. Certainly, let me add uh, another encouragement, if I might, to keep in mind the activities of next Sunday. The, the third Sunday singing takes place here August every year, and so that'll be next Sunday. So please keep that in mind. Two o'clock next Sunday afternoon. In addition to, to that, certainly we're so thankful for the presence of each and everybody today. God has been very, very good to us, hasn't He? The lesson of the day today is, has perhaps a title that evokes many thoughts in our thinking. When I'm wrong, you and I will turn our attention in just a few moments to give some consideration. But as we do that, this opening slide will be just an incredibly general matter. But it will motivate us, certainly, I hope, for the slides that follow. The Word of God, you and I can rest assured, has within it the teaching that's necessary to address any issue that we shall ever face. No matter what matter occurs in your life or mine, there is something in the Word of God that offers wisdom and insight and the correct way to approach it. Isn't it amazing that when you and I are right about something, it's quite often not too much a challenge to deal with being right. We understand then the blessing that comes with it, and we'll learn in just a few moments, really the only major challenge is perhaps an easy one to imagine. But what happens when I'm wrong? What happens in life when in some situation or some circumstance, I come later to find out that I was wrong? How do I handle that? What would be the approaches that would be most beneficial and most helpful? There are many examples in the Word of God, but we shall choose a particular individual today. But as we set the stage for what we're going to see in this man's life and for quite, quite likely what might be in your life and mine, let's make some initial thoughts about everybody. That includes you and me. Everybody. First things first. I mentioned a moment ago how, in fact, it's often not much a challenge to be right and how to deal with those situations, but may we all keep in mind there will be occasions when we're wrong. Speaking about Romans 10, or rather Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. Thirteen verses later, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. So in one sense, you and I can readily appreciate the fact that every one of us are going to be wrong at some point or another. Now, I've used those verses in light of that connection to sin. But I might say that we can even broaden it. There will be many occasions in life when there will be judgments or appreciations, secular in character. And we will ultimately realize later we've made a poor decision. We made a bad decision. We were wrong. Keeping that in mind, look at what follows. There will be times when we simply make errors in judgment. That is to say, we did the best that the moment that we thought we could have done. In light of the evidence before us, we made the decision we felt to be in best keeping of wisdom and insight, and yet later, we still realized that it was not the thing that was best. It was not the thing that would have been optimal. Errors in judgment. Even Samuel made one. 
you could argue he made more than one, but consider 1 Samuel 16. Wasn't it there? You may remember that the God of heaven had informed him, you go to Bethlehem and you, announce, you anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king. And sure enough, Samuel came and the people of that city were somewhat agitated by the fact he came. And yet he informed them that, Jesse, bring your boys here. It's rather amazing. Samuel hadn't been told which one. David's oldest brother was apparently a very impressive man to see. And when Samuel saw him, surely this is the one. God said, Samuel, he's not the one. He's not the one you anoint as king. Now again, Samuel looked upon his outward appearance. He looked upon what appeared to be the thing that was right, and yet it wasn't. In his mind, he had made an error in judgment. May I say that you and I frequently may find ourselves in that scenario. We have erred in judgment. We have made a decision that was not optimal. For all those reasons, may I say then, let us at least reflect, when we are right, when we have made the judgment that's correct, the Word of God would be quick to remind us, even in those cases, must we be careful to always be meek and to always be humble and to always appreciate a lowliness of heart. When we're right, may we never say, I told you so. That's not becoming of a Christian. It is not our place to lord it over others. It is our place to meekly and humbly attempt to help them appreciate where we got that wisdom or the place in which that it could lead them. You notice in Romans 12 verse 3, Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought. So even when we're right, may we appreciate the need for meekness and humility. But of course, the major subject of the day is not when I'm right, but when I'm wrong. So let's close that slide like this. How do we respond in those cases? I suppose we each can think of matters in our life and instances when all of this happened. Let's revisit 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. And let's there look carefully at how one gentleman responded when he was wrong. And let's learn several lessons about what he did. We're going to find that he made some valiant mistakes. And he responded incorrectly. So we're going to build the lesson like that. We're going to look at all the things he did wrong about his response. And we'll try to not make the same mistakes. To do justice to the text, though, let's at least take a moment and rehearse the setting, and then we'll leap into some applications for ourselves. The God of heaven, you may remember, had selected Saul as the first king of Israel. And so here was this person who appears to have been impressive to see. Saul was a man who stood above his others. He was tall and handsome. He was perhaps what you'd expect in terms of this natural one to attract leadership in terms of others following him. And yet in 1 Samuel 15, the God of heaven, beginning in verse 1, gave him a commission, an order. God said, I remember what the Amalekites did to my people. Saul, you go and you utterly destroy them. Man and woman... Even babies, children, all of them, you utterly destroy them. And in fact, you even destroy their sheep, their camels, their asses. 
No animals or humans are to be salvaged or saved. Now those words that God gave to Saul were very deliberate, very straightforward and easy to understand. And so as you can see on the slide, Saul made preparation. He called together the people of Israel and constructed an army totaling 210,000 footmen. Seems like a certainly a notable number. And not only that, he made one other amazing preparation. There were a group of people living amongst the Amalekites. These people were known as Kenites. You and I might remember that, in fact, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. Now, these people had always been friendly to Israel. In fact, they had helped them. Saul, in fact, sent word ahead to the Kenites, you need to get out from among the Amalekites because we're coming to destroy them. The Kenites did leave. And that set everything up for what you'll notice in number three, the third element on that slide. Could I call to your attention verse number seven? It says, And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And that sounds so fantastic. He smote them. But verse 8 continues. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse... That they destroyed utterly. You and I have already noted then, in light of the commission that he was given, Saul did not carry out the command of God. He was not to keep any woman, any man, any child, or any animal. And you'll notice, under his oversight, they spared King Agag. And furthermore, they spared many animals, those they considered good. And so on the slide, you may notice... The next thing the chapter reveals to us is that God informed the prophet Samuel about something. In fact, God was incredibly sad. He informed Samuel, Saul hasn't kept my word. He has been disobedient. The language of verses 10 and following points me to this simple statement. God told Samuel, Saul has not kept my commandment. In light of that, look at what then happens. Consider as I read 1 Samuel 15, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul. So you and I now notice that having been informed of the disobedience of Saul, Samuel came to Saul. And you'll notice that Saul speaks first. Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's first reaction is, Good to see you, Samuel. I've kept the command of God. You'll quickly notice in the verses that follow, Samuel then asks a very profound question. Samuel said, What meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If we may paraphrase, Saul, if you've kept the command of the Lord... What then is these sheep that I hear bleeding? And what about these oxen I hear bawling? Notice what occurs next. Verse 15. Saul said, 
They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. You'll notice then on the slide that as this conversation has developed, we now appreciate that Saul has given his next reply. We wanted to sacrifice, and so we kept the best of those Amalekite animals. At this point, what's God's verdict? Verses 17 and following. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Might we pause here to note this? There's a word carefully chosen in verse 19. It's the word evil. Now you and I today, of course, live in a time when many would say, He was supposed to kill babies and women, not only men. You and I might think, well, look, wouldn't it be evil to kill them? Wouldn't it be evil to destroy them? And yet the Bible says it was evil because he didn't do it. When he did not do what God said, that by definition made it evil. It doesn't matter what the human scenario of it might otherwise be. But at this point, verse 20, let's listen to Saul's next reply. After hearing God's verdict of his disobedience, verse 20 says, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. One more time, he declared, But I have, Samuel, I have obeyed him. He goes on to say, And have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Isn't it interesting to hear Saul's next reply? But you and I now come to verses 22 and 23, perhaps the most well-known verses in the chapter. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. As this is played out before us, of course maintained by inspiration of the word of God, you and I come to the close of that slide and note God has rejected Saul, there will be no repentance that will save his kingship. God's going to take the kingship from him and give it to somebody else. With that said, the chapter closes. And over the last portion of it is that discussion about how that Samuel is so sorrowful for what Saul had done. But now, to the point of our lesson today, you and I have seen how did Saul react to being wrong? May I suggest sometimes you and I can do the same things he did. Let's learn some lessons. When I'm wrong, lesson number one, one of the first terrible things we can do when we're wrong 
is to deny the wrong. Have you ever been in a scenario or situation when you did not what you did not do what was right, you did what was wrong, and then when someone challenged you about it, you denied the wrong? You and I perhaps can go quickly in the effort to defend ourselves, to save face, if you please, just simply deny that there was ever any wrong done, despite the fact they know it, you know it, others know it. But you just deny the wrong. Saul tried it, didn't he? Did you note again the first thing he said to Samuel when Samuel came to him the next morning? It was he, in verse 13, that said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. When in his own words, later in the conversation, he admitted that he didn't. He first tried to deny it. Let's develop some of these points about that. It is tempting, I suppose, on occasion, isn't it? Someone challenges you. Well, didn't you do this? Knowing all the while, all the while that both you and they know it and you know it's wrong, but, well, no, I didn't do that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. To deny the wrong does not make it right. To deny the wrong does not acquire the forgiveness of God. To deny the wrong does not, in fact, do anything to make one in a right standing with God. Denying it does nothing worthwhile. It only makes the matter worse. It only digs a deeper scenario that one then needs to make right. Because now you've lied on top of everything else. To deny the wrong is just a lie. Saul tried it. In fact, he tried it twice in the same chapter. May I say that not only, though, can you and I do this in secular circles, there are times it appears even in religious discussions, doesn't it? Now, there are those who, perhaps, when challenged about things that have religious significance to them, and they deny that, well, Bible doesn't teach that, knowing all the while, all the while that it does. And they simply hope that you don't know where it's at in the Bible. You see, again, that doesn't change anything. The fact is, denying the wrong does not make it right. In Colossians 3.25, we have this paramount statement about this. You might appreciate, in fact, note how that chapter ends. Colossians 3.25, He that hath done wrong shall receive for the wrong that he hath done. And he is no respecter of persons. That's strong, isn't it? When you do wrong, you're going to receive for the wrong that you've done. Denying it is not going to change that. The first lesson you and, in, you and I then might note is this. May we not deny the wrong if we've done it. That's a terrible thing to try. In fact, it makes us look bad. It makes us look dishonest. For the other person knows you did it. That's the reason they're challenging you on it. Perhaps it's fair to say that isn't all that Saul tried. Not only did he try to deny it, perhaps one that's even more common is this. Try to justify the wrong. That is to say, try to implant in the heart of the one who's challenging you that you had ample reason for doing it and you were justified in that wrong. Saul tried it. Look with me at this appreciation. Note verse 15. After he first had declared to Samuel, I've kept the command of the Lord. You might remember that Samuel then said, Well, why do I hear these sheep bleeding? 
And why do I hear these oxen lowing? The next thing Saul said in verse 15 was this. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord thy God. Samuel, wouldn't you agree? Sacrifice is good. God commands sacrifice. We spared only what was needed for sacrifice. We're not keeping them for ourselves. We're not increasing our herd because of it. But don't you agree, Samuel? It's a good thing to sacrifice. Justifying the wrong. God said for all of those Amalekites and their possessions to be destroyed. There was nothing said about salvaging some for sacrifice. And yet here, Saul has insisted, we've kept them for sacrifice. Look at some of these thoughts with me. Today, isn't it still quite often the case? How pertinent it is and how often tried. You're in the wrong. Oh, but I had good reason for it. Here's my thinking. I had good reason for behaving that way. You challenge someone in a religious consideration. Why do you have a person playing a guitar in your worship? The Bible doesn't say anything about using that approvedly. Oh, but that helps our singing. We can sing on key with that person playing. It helps us stay in tune. So what? God would rather hear out of tune singing with what He's approved and singing that's in tune. What did He say in verse 22? To obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken in the fat of rams. Saul and the people slid into what they thought was better. We'll keep those animals, knowing full well God had said to destroy them. But as they offered their alternate reasoning, you and I have found already that didn't suit God. God didn't approve that alternate reasoning. It was not possible to justify the wrong. Let's continue to note this. What is it that identifies what is good? For after all, in our present day, that is an oft-utilized method of approach, isn't it? I'm going to do what's good in every scenario. Well, that sounds fine. Who determines what's good? And what determines what's good? No doubt many among Israel might have thought, well, surely it's good to spare these animals. And it's good to spare King Agag. After all, we perhaps can use him as a powerful teaching tool amongst Israel. I tell you what, we will in fact set him up and we'll gather our children. And we will let him present an object lesson to them of what happens when you disobey God. Oh, this will be great. That's nonsense. God said, kill him. No amount of human reasoning could justify anything else because anything else was evil. Our society should learn that lesson. It would be wonderful if it did. When God says something is wrong, that forever dictates and determines it's wrong. doesn't matter what I or society or anyone else might perceive would be apparently good. It isn't. God is good. Did Jesus say that in Matthew 19? He highlighted the fact, none is good save God. 
And as that statement was made, it reminded those on that occasion and us today of the sweetness of God's commandments and how that it's always right. First thing, may we never try to deny the wrong. If we've done it, far better as we'll see in a moment to do something besides deny it. Furthermore, don't try to justify it. Wrong is wrong. Far better to do something besides either one of them. Let's try number three. What else did Saul try? He tried something else. We've already noted it, but he tried it twice. What about introducing an accomplice? Have somebody else standing with you in the wrong so that it isn't just you. Could I ask you to note the language again? Verse number 15, the first thing Saul said, what's the pronoun he used? They have brought them. Don't you lay this on me, Samuel. They have brought them. It wasn't my fault, or at least not all my fault. They are guilty too. Look at it later, verse number 20. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, Saul said. And have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. Again, rehearsing what he'd done, look at how he starts the next verse. But the people took of the spoil. Samuel, don't you know, the people took these animals. It wasn't my idea. It was not the thing that came out to my heart. To introduce an accomplice, isn't that another common tactic? Oh, I was wrong, all right, but... He helped me do it. She was right there with me. May I ask, does that change anything? If it was wrong, the fact that another person may have been involved, does that change anything about the wrongness of it? Does it change anything about the verdict of guilt? Look at some of these observations. You and I know that this is one of the devil's favorite things that he hopes we'll do. Rather than standing on our own two feet, admitting the wrong, and trying to then make it right, try to weasel our way out of this by saying, somebody else helped me do it, and don't take the blame for it. Adam and Eve tried it. The very first sin in all of human history, they partook of that forbidden fruit. Eve took of it first, gave to Adam, and he did eat. And then when God addressed them about it, you may recall He addressed Adam. And the thing that Adam said... This woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate. But notice how he started the sentence. It's her fault. She gave it to me. And then when he addressed Eve, the serpent did it. The serpent's the one who beguiled me. We can't transfer the blame. When we're wrong, we're wrong. It doesn't matter if someone else had a part to play in it or not. And furthermore, even if they gave the advice, we're the ones that chose to do what they advised. We're the ones that made the final decision. God never allows us to transfer the blame to somebody else. My sin is my sin. And your sin is your sin. And when I'm wrong, introducing an accomplice doesn't help the matter at all. In fact, look at one final thing. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that powerful passage reminding us of the day of judgment, every one of us shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. And as that is echoed, 
and given some elaboration in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done, note it with me, in His body, singular pronoun. We're not going to be judged by families. We won't be judged by churches. We'll not be judged by nations. We'll be judged individually. And so when we're wrong, may we not jump to this consideration, though tempting it may be, to bring in an accomplice. They made me do it. He made me do it. She encouraged me to do it. Number four. What about this one? Saul tried this one too. Now this is one that again is perhaps an easy one for you and me to even understand how it can play upon the heartstrings. God told Saul, you destroy the Amalekites. Utterly destroy them. Why is it that Saul said he and the people brought back these animals? As I mentioned earlier, it was not to increase their herds. That's not what he said. He didn't say anything about selling them for the money so they could increase the coffers of the nation. didn't say anything about that. What he said was, we're going to sacrifice them. There's religious intent behind this. I know that we disobeyed, but we did it so that we can serve God. We're going to offer them as a sacrifice. And God commands sacrifice. Quite often when an individual is wrong, if that person can find a way to put a religious reason behind it, suddenly perhaps it's tempting to think, I've justified it. I had every reason to do what I did because it had a religious intent behind it. That's tempting. Because religion plays on the heartstrings of people. We've seen that by virtue of the number of wealthy televangelists and others. People are willing to support and encourage religion. Saul said, we're going to sacrifice them. And so note this. God had a response to this. Perhaps you and I could give more attention to verses 22 and 23. I read that earlier, but perhaps in light of number 4, let's read it again. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Notice, he does not say that burnt offerings and sacrifices are wrong. Because clearly they weren't. In fact, God commanded His people to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. The book of Leviticus goes into great detail. He isn't saying those things are wrong. But note again the way he phrased the question. Hath the Lord as great delight... God's greatest delight. His greatest delight, as that verse says, is when people obey Him. When you do what He says, it brings Him delight. Today, as those that would wish to be His people, the reason we can with such excitement and fervor appreciate our place as saved individuals is because we do His will. And we thrill at doing His will. That verse goes on to say, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken to the fat of rams. It's better to obey Him. Now today, you and I know our sacrifice has been offered for us. Jesus did it. We don't have to gather up a bullock or a sheep 
or a goat or something and take it to a, a place of tabernacle. Jesus did that once for all time. And what He says to you and me today is, follow me, do what I say. To obey is still better than sacrifice. Let's close that slide like this. This concept is quoted several times in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have this idea verbatim presented. And how sweet it is then to apply it to you, to your life and mine today. To obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken to the fat of rams as we seek to obey Him. Perhaps you and I can now say this. It's tempting to slide some religious reason into why you and I might do something wrong. Oh, I know that I did that, but I had a good reason. I need to be ready to go to church services. So you speak unadvisedly to somebody so that you can be ready to go to a church service. Well, notice, the end does not justify the means. To do right now does not justify doing wrong at some other time. It never has and it never will. It's never right to do the thing that's wrong. Never, ever, ever. Saul has tried four things. God has quickly done away with all four of them. May I say that there is another that he tried. Number five. This one comes out of verse 24. What else did Saul attempt? And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. After two times of saying, I have done what God said, now he at least finally admits, I sinned. He finally confesses, I did wrong, but he says, I was afraid of the people. That's what motivated me to do it. I was scared of them. Did that justify it? There's no doubt in the life of a Christian there may be a number of occasions when something that others may or can do may scare us. Sometimes they have power over us in one way or another. It didn't justify it for Saul. Even after that, Samuel didn't say, Well, I understand now. God forgives you. You can have your kingship back. He never said that. In fact, he said, The kingdom has been rent from you, and it will never be given back. Regardless of how others might or might not react, that doesn't dictate me doing wrong now. If I do what's wrong just because I'm afraid of them, then I've still done wrong. It doesn't change the fact I did wrong. Even if I was afraid of them, even if I was fearful for what they might do. As you'll notice on the slide, it's far better to appreciate this. We need to be fearful of God more than men. We need to fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. A number of other examples could be listed, and certainly in brevity one can appreciate. Aaron tried this one too. It's a scene that no doubt has rested often upon our heart with Moses on Mount Sinai. Aaron supervised the building of a golden calf. And when challenged about it, he did not say, I'm sorry I was wrong. He said, I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. 
Now, you and I remember that didn't justify what Abram did. Abram was wrong. Saul was wrong. When you and I are wrong, let's not let what someone else may or may not do cause us to think, well, I had reason for doing that. As we said earlier in Colossians 3.25, He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong that he hath done. We've looked at all the wrong ways to respond when we're wrong. What's the right way? What's the thing Saul should have done? Well, first, he should have obeyed God to start with, but he didn't. But when first challenged about it, isn't it true that the wrong thing to do, don't try to deny it and don't try to justify it and don't argue about it. None of that's going to change it. The thing we need to do is repent of it beg forgiveness from God or others that we have offended in this and make it right. That'll clear our conscience. It'll make us right with God. And then we can go on about life living faithfully. That's what we need to do. Sadly, Saul didn't and God rejected him. He'll reject us if we try all these other tactics because they don't work. What about your heart and mind today? If there's wrongs in your life, and right now, standing before God, things are not good, don't try to justify it. Don't try to deny it. Don't try to argue with God about it. Don't try to offer excuse for it. Simply repent of it and beg His forgiveness as He's commanded. We stand, of course, before the great God of heaven, Today, I hope you and I have been reminded that Saul's mistakes can be great teaching tools for us. When I'm wrong, let's repent of it and let's make it right. The Bible encourages so sweetly an attitude of being willing to forgive a brother, to forgive someone when they ask you. In fact, we're told that if we won't forgive one who asks of us, God won't forgive us, Matthew 6, 14. And so today, if you and I need to take care of wrongs in our life, do it the Bible way. That's the only way it can be done. Everything else is merely making the matter worse. If there's anyone in this audience who needs to come in a public way before this audience, before God today, this hymn of encouragement, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing it. And what an opportune time. If you are a person who's never become a child of God, never become a Christian, never be a better day than this one. You can, in fact, make observation of your belief, repentance, confession, and be baptized into Christ. If you have become a child of God, though, and haven't lived faithful to that calling, you realize that there's wrongs in your life and in your heart. And at this point, you are in blackness before God, but you want to be white again. You don't do it. By justifying the wrong, you don't do it by trying to run from the wrong. You do it when you have the wrong forgiven. That's the only way, and that's why Jesus shed His blood. That's why He died. And if we could help you today, approach it the right way. Through the Word of God, we'd love to help you. Now, while together we stand and while we sing.